The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning, Doxa. Uh, we will be reading from 1 Peter 5, verses 10 through 14. It should be on the screen behind me. And also there are uh, Bibles under your chair, and they're on page 1017. Um, yeah. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This has been the reading of God's word. You can be seated. Uh, Welcome, Doxa Church. My name is Tim Briggs, and I am a pastor at New City Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, which is a sister church to you all. We're part of the same denomination, so I'm glad uh, to be with you Uh, Here this morning, uh, we have a special place in our heart for Doxa Church. Uh, We like to follow Doxa from from afar in a non-creepy way, I promise. Um, But we love what we're seeing, and uh, it's really humbling to be here. We have also a special place in our heart because the first time I ever preached uh, was at Doxa Church about a year and a half ago. And you kept the booze to a minimum, and I really appreciate that. There was no throwing of tomatoes, which I really love. And I saw a lot of smiling faces out in the crowd encouraging me, and so I really appreciate that, and I see that already. So thanks for having me here with you this morning. Just a little bit about me. If you don't know much about me, I've been married for 14 years to my wife, Jenny. And if you've ever met Jenny, you know that she is the better half in our relationship. And we have three boys, ages 10, 7, and 5. And if that sounds rowdy, it's because it is. It's rowdy in the Briggs Manor. Uh, There's lots of Legos and fort building and sports and potty humor, and I have no clue where they get any of that stuff. Um, But we have a lot of fun in the Briggs household. So thanks for having me. And uh, speaking of sports, let's start by talking about baseball, shall we? I thought I might get my first amen there, but that's okay. No baseball fans here, that's all right. I won't bore you for very long. We're going to talk about baseball. Uh, There was a book written in 2003 uh, called Moneyball. It was later turned into a movie in 2011. Anyone ever read this book or seen uh, the movie? A few of you? Okay. I'm going to ruin it for the rest of you all. You should still read it or watch the movie, though. Uh, Moneyball tells the story of the Oakland Athletics baseball franchise, and it chronicles them in the 2001 and 2002 baseball seasons, and it really focuses in specifically on the general manager of the club, Billy Bean. Okay, and so in 2001, the Oakland A's had a great year. They won 102 games. They made it to the playoffs, which means they were one of the eight best teams in the major leagues. Uh, But they narrowly lost to the New York Yankees in the American League Division Series, okay? So great year, but they didn't win the World Series. They lost, and they go into the offseason, and they had a bad offseason. They ended up losing three of their best players, okay? The the truth is they just couldn't afford uh, to pay them. You see, the Oakland Athletics have one of the lowest payrolls 
in Major League Baseball. So they lost three of their best players, and they started wrestling with how are we going uh, to win? How are we going to field a competitive team when we have uh, a low payroll, we don't have the resources to replace these players and their production? How are we going uh, to do this? And so they started wrestling with how, how do we put forward a winning team each year without uh, these resources? And so they started thinking outside of the box. How could we do this? Could we uh, value players that other teams don't value? Could these players help us win on the cheap? Could we find an outside-of-the-box way to put forth a winning team? And so going into uh, 2002, that's what they did. They, they brought in a whole bunch of no-name players, and if you would have looked at their roster, you thought, they're not going to go very far. Uh, but they did. They started off really slow, but they finished strong. In fact, during uh, one point in the season, they won 20 games in a row, which is still a major league record. And they ended up winning 103 games, one more game than they did uh, the previous years. Quite a season. And um, the author of the book, Michael Lewis, he talked about the book being really a biography of an idea. He summed up uh, the book by saying it was a way to rethink baseball, how it's managed, how it's played, who is best suited to play it, and why. And if you've seen the movie, you know that, that Billy Bean kind of becomes the hero. He, he's figured out a way to do something no one thought he could. He was a pioneer. Uh, he was countercultural. Uh, he was upside down. Uh, we are closing First Peter, and you've been going through the sermon series titled Upside Down Kingdom. And in First Peter, uh, you guys have heard uh, the story of exiles living in a foreign land. You've heard uh, the story of being a citizen in a potentially corrupt government. You've heard the story of being an employee to an unjust employer, about a spouse participating in a potentially difficult marriage, about a slandered victim in a relationship, and how to persevere and serve among messy people uh, called the local church. And all of this is opposite to worldly wisdom. To live this way is opposite of worldly wisdom, yet this is the work that we are called to in the upside-down kingdom, is it not? Uh, we've learned throughout this letter that Christianity has always been a misunderstood minority because we serve a different king than the king of this world. So as we look at our passage today, we're going to see those themes continue as we close out this series, and we'll specifically see the wonderful work of God the true grace of God, and the beautiful community of God. So first, the wonderful work of God. If you have your Bibles open and if you want to follow along, we're going to focus in on verses 10 and 11 for a few minutes. Uh, so verses 10 and 11 say this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, we, we can't escape the topic of suffering in First Peter, can we? And of course, no true Christian can escape suffering in life. It's just a reality. We will have trouble in this world. We will have suffering in this world. There is no escape. But then we read in the passage, it says, After you have suffered 
And how long does it say? A little while. A little while. And that sounds like some good news, doesn't it? Right? We will only suffer for a little while. That sounds amazing. We want to grasp onto that. Um, But it's not quite that simple. You see, in the scope of eternity, a little while is a little while. It's a blip, right, in the scope of eternity. But here and now, this side of eternity, uh, a a little while can be a long little while. Uh, There is no cheat code. There's no shortcut to bypassing suffering. It is a reality of this world. And many of you know this very personally, and it'd be easy just to blow past this part and get on to the best part of this passage, but we do have to pause for a moment. We do have to honor our pain and our struggle and our suffering because it's real. And it would be disingenuous just to push on. The good news is, is that the Christian faith is big enough big enough to embrace suffering head-on and lament it. We can learn how to lament. Uh, The book of Psalms is a great book to read, to learn how to lament. It teaches us how to pray, how to sing, how to struggle. And all this reminded me of Psalm 13, which starts off by saying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long... Must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And we know these questions, don't we? Our souls cry out, how long? In fact, that question appears 20 times in the Psalms. And the Psalms are giving us permission to ask that question. It's not a sign of weakness to say, how long, O Lord? In fact, It's a sign of strength. And this is yet another upside-down kingdom principle for all of us. And if the story ended there, it would be a sad story, that there is pain and that's all there is. But that is not the end of the story. Um, There is a resolution to our pain and suffering. As hard as our pain is, it is temporary. A little while is a little while in the scope of eternity, and therein lies the good news in this verse. So we just don't, we don't just lament, right? We hope. We have hope. In the midst of our pain and suffering, we have the hope of eternal glory in Christ. And this is the good news that the lost world so desperately needs, right? Can you imagine without knowing the gospel... That all there is is pain and suffering, how miserable that would be, right? The best we could do, the best, would be to detach from that pain or be distracted from it or run away, right? There is no hope that there is a resolution without Christ. Do you see why our hope matters? Our hope says there's a purpose in the pain. Our hope says that pain and suffering won't have the last word. Our hope says that even in the midst of our pain and suffering, we can comfort those who are going through the same thing because we know what it's like. Our hope says that pain and suffering won't define us, that we will overcome pain and suffering. Our hope says hardship is short and joy is forever. And our hope says that there will be a day, one day, when there is no more pain, suffering, death, or tears.
And isn't that good news? Can I get an amen up in here? Isn't that good news? There we go. There we go. That's good. Uh, I know you've heard this message a thousand times in this series, but hear it again. This is what we need to latch on to. This is what we cling to in our darkest moments. We have eternal hope of glory in Christ in the midst of our pain and suffering. That's the hope we cling to. And that's what makes us different than the world. So we will suffer for a long little while, yet in the midst we can cling to our eternal hope. And the danger for all of us is that we have a danger to err on one side or the other. The danger for us is to just lean into our pain and suffering and never see past it, right, and just live in that place forever. Or try to detach ourselves and just move on to the good news that one day it'll all be over. And we have to live in the midst of that tension. And the reality is for all of us, we can do, we can do both. Uh, we, can, we can have sorrow and we can have joy. And those two things are intertwined. That's how we are called uh, to live. But that's not all. There's much more good news in this passage. The verse continues saying that Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we could talk about what all of those words individually mean, but they all give us the same sense that God is working in the midst of of our pain and suffering. And it's at this point we remember who's writing these words. Peter. Peter's writing these words, and these are not just intellectual things that he believes. There are things that he has personally experienced firsthand. You see, Peter knows restoration and confirmation, does he not? He was the same man who denied Christ three times but was welcomed back into Christ's arms. And he knows strengthening and establishing because he was set as an apostle by Christ and a leader in the early church. Peter has experienced what he's writing here in verse 10 very much firsthand. And just to be clear about what God promises to do in us, it's not just a work that he does on the other side of eternity. It's a work that he does here and now in the midst of our pain and suffering. He is strengthening us. He's helping us get through this. He's perfecting us here even now in the midst of our hardship. You see, verse 10 is ultimately about assurance. It's about assurance that we will persevere through our pain and suffering, and it's about assurance and salvation, that we will have eternal hope in Christ. And know that when we think about assurance, our assurance does not lie in the confidence of ourselves or the amount of faith that we have. It resides in the object of our faith. And that's good news because we are fragile, fragile creatures. Our assurance lies in how big God is and what he has done for us. And we see this clearly in this verse, this idea of assurance. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Himself. What a precious word that is. See, God's not delegating the work to someone else. He's doing the work himself. This is a very personal work that he's doing. It's a very compassionate work that he is doing. But unfortunately, we don't often think of God that way, do we? We think of God in very different terms. Uh, We think of God kind of like a father who has a son, 
and the sun is playing outdoors, and maybe the sun has tripped over uh, roots in the ground and has a giant laceration on his leg, and the the son is crying, and the son comes indoors and says, Dad, Dad, I cut my leg, and he's just he's overwhelmed with emotion, and uh, the dad says, well, you shouldn't have been running outside, should you, son? And uh, that, that cut's definitely going to need some attention, probably going to need some stitches, and someone needs to kind of get you back in shape here. You're, you're a crying mess, and I'm not going to do any of that, so get outside my house, right? That's how we think God operates. But this verse confronts any notions that we have, God being distant or harsh or withholding or judgmental. And make no mistake, God is a God of justice and righteousness, surely, uh, but he's not a cosmic dictator. He's not withholding. He's tender, he's compassionate, and he's kind. This is the kind of God we read about in Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It's the same God we read about in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest, a great high priest, who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one in every respect, who's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It is at the throne of grace through the personal, affectionate, kind work of Christ that we find assurance. Assurance to persevere in our pain and suffering an assurance of our salvation, our hope in Christ. So I hope you see 1 Peter 5 and 10, sorry, 1 Peter 5:10 as one of the sweetest, most grace-filled verses in the Bible, because it is. This verse tells us our greatest hope lies not in the change of our circumstances, but in God Himself. He is doing a good work in us now, and He will see it through until the end. And in light of this truth, it's quite fitting that the section ends uh, with this benediction. It says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When God promises to do all of the work that's outlined in verse 10, we know he can get it done because he is an all-powerful, sovereign God. He's more powerful than any circumstance we face. He's more powerful than even the devil himself, which means he will not fail. He will not yield. He will accomplish every one of his purposes. Listen to this. In his timing, in his timing, God always delivers upon his promise, always. One last thing before we move off verses 10 and 11. As I uh, prepared to preach uh, this message, I was thinking of you all. Again, we follow you all from afar. And I understand there's been some renewed energy around the, the concept of mission and the, uh, the Great Commission and reaching people and just reaching back to what uh, this church was founded upon. And I really commend you for that. I understand this has been called Operation Risk It for the Biscuit. Is that true? <laughs> Trademark Randy Goff 2019. I think I owe him some royalties just for uh, saying that phrase. Uh, it's really humbling to see that, honestly. Um, 
It's convicting. It's challenging to me to see you all. I just gather around the idea of mission. So I commend you for that. And had me thinking, what, what does this, these two verses here in 10 and 11, what do they have to say about mission? And I think they have to say quite a bit. Can you imagine what sort of witness uh, you all would have if everyone at Doxa Church took serious uh, the call of 1 Peter to suffer well for Christ? Can you imagine how it would look if you lamented well, if you suffered well, if you lived as if you really believe that God is sovereign and that he has a plan and that he is at work? Again, I'm not talking about some detached fakery where we all put on a smiling face and pretend like everything's good. I'm talking about honesty and vulnerability and struggle, but joy laced in with that. To a lost world, you would be considered weird, but attractive. I think people would long for the very thing that you have which reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. First Peter is a call for all of us to let our tragedies preach the gospel. Let your tragedies preach the gospel. Let our lives be a vessel for his megaphone. It's a call for us to show people how to live with honesty, with hope, and even joy. So in your darkest hours, let your light shine, and let's see how God might go about rousing a deaf world. And I could end the sermon right there, and we could just run out of the locker room and go play that game, but there's so much more good stuff in this passage, uh, so we're going to keep going. Uh, we're going to talk about the true grace of God. And if you're following along in the text, you see this is the point where you see the final greetings in your text, that heading. And if we're honest, uh, in our devotional time, as we read letters in the New Testament, we come to the final greetings, probably at best we kind of just skim through them, right? So we think these are like the book acknowledgments. And who <laughs> reads the book acknowledgments, right? But here's the deal. This, this end portion of 1 Peter is no less inspired than the whole rest of the book. There's a purpose for these final greetings, and I hope uh, we see them together. Uh, so verse 12 says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Uh, so Peter acknowledges Silvanus. He's also known as Silas in his work with the letter. We don't know if he's a scribe or a secretary or a deliverer. Uh, we don't really know. But what I want you to notice in this verse is how Peter sums up the whole letter. He sums up this whole letter that you've been journeying through for, for months. He sums it up by saying, this is the true grace of God. You see, grace is a major topic in this letter. As you know, it's mentioned nine times. And we learn that God gives grace in salvation. He gives grace in our humility. He gives grace in the very life that we have. He gives grace in varying levels of all of our giftings. He gives us grace in our suffering. And hopefully you're seeing a trend here, right? Um, God gives. Because God is the God of all grace. He is the creator, possessor, and distributor of grace. God gives us the grace to live this life. And he gives us 
life itself. So what is grace? In secular terms, you might hear it defined as a courteous goodwill. In Christian circles, you've probably heard grace as defined as unmerited Favor. Grace is unmerited favor. And Peter describes the whole letter as the true grace of God, which implies that uh, there's a false grace. If there's a true grace, there must be a false grace. And so what is the false grace of God? We could talk about this in a lot of different angles, but I think false grace is when we attempt to acquire grace or to abuse grace, either to acquire it or to abuse it. So acquiring grace treats grace like a transaction. In this system, grace is something that we we earn, right? I'm sure you know this system well. It's that inner voice that says, my my good deeds have to outnumber my bad deeds, right? And by doing so, we think we can make ourselves worthy to God, as if we could work up some resume and submit it to Him, and then we get His grace. We get forgiveness, we get salvation, we get restoration. That's how we can often think of grace, except that this is a burden that we were never made to carry. We can never carry that burden. Our work will never be enough. This grace will always be elusive. We'll never scrape together enough to earn it. So that's acquiring grace. But then we can abuse grace, right? We can say, God saves us by his grace so I can live any way that I want to live. God will forgive me no matter what. So we can go about living our lives, and at any point we can pull out the get-out-of-jail-free card out of our back pocket and say, here it is, I'm forgiven. It does not matter how I live, I'm just forgiven. And both of these views, acquiring and abusing, are false grace. False grace. True grace is best understood as a gift. It's a gift because there's nothing expected in return. It's a gift because it's free. And it's a gift because we get to keep it for eternity, forever. And this, of course, is the heart of the gospel message, is it not? This is what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is a gift of God so that no man can boast. This grace is free because the giver paid the cost. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve, and rose again, and he's inviting us into that resurrection life. That gift is forever. And while the gift doesn't expect anything in return transactionally, we do respond to this gift. We don't abuse the gift. We live a life worthy of the gift. We're not saved by works, but we are saved, listen, to works in response to our love and appreciation of both the gift and the giver. We're saved to works. I recited uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 before. Ephesians 2, 10, listen to this. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works in which he prepared in advance for us to do. We're saved to works in response to God's good work for us. This is the true grace that Peter is talking about. So if you're here today and you think, I'm not qualified, I'm not spiritual enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, uh, I don't know enough, know this, you're in good company. You're in really good company. 
None of us are good enough. Only Jesus is. And it's here that we find hope, even in the midst of our spiritual bankruptcy, we're reminded of the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are all poor in spirit. We have nothing to offer. And this is why we can sing what we sang earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. This is the true grace of God that Peter has been writing about. So as we close our time, let's talk about the beautiful family of God. And I want to zero in, if you're following along in the text, I want to zero in for a little bit on this idea of greeting one another with a holy kiss, okay? I can see you start to squirm a little bit. You're starting to wrestle with what, what, the, what is the application of this sermon going to be? Uh, I'm going to just put that to ease. I'm not going to recommend that we make out at the end of this session. We'll let the Spirit lead however He leads, but no, <laughs> however that works out. Um, that's not going to be the application. Um, the book of 1 Peter closes with these verses. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends your greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And this is kind of a strange ending, right? It is a letter. This is a personal um, way to end the letter, but it is kind of strange. And I wrestled with that this week. Why, why this ending? Why this kiss? Why end with these uh, specific verses? And I hope um, you see it with me. I think, I think this is a reminder of community. It's a reminder of family. It says, she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen. This is likely a reference to the church in Rome. So in other words, the church in Rome, Mark, they've been praying for these dispersed believers that Peter is writing to. There's a, there's a teamwork, a togetherness that's being expressed in this passage. And then we are told to greet one another with a holy kiss. And I know that's foreign to us in our culture, but in their culture, that would have been a sign of love and affection, something that you do together as a family. After all, that's what the church is, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ with God as our Father. Now, some of you came from broken families, and you have a broken understanding of what a, a healthy father or mother is, or what a healthy brother or sister is. And if that's, if that's the case, I get it. But I hope as you read the Bible, you see a loving, kind, compassionate father, and you see all the things that we are supposed to do in community together as brothers and sisters, to bear each other's burdens, to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to weep with one another. And if you come from a broken family, I hope that you see all this family language in the Bible, and I hope you long for it. I hope it gives you a vision for what it means to be a part of the family of God. And so 1 Peter ends with family. And this makes sense because the whole letter is not addressed to a person. It's addressed to community. It's addressed to the family of God. It's addressed to churches. 
Think about this. The word you, Y-O-U, is, is used 143 times in 1 Peter, 143 times. And most of those are the plural you, not the singular you, the plural you. We tend to read the Bible individualistically, right? But most of the time, it's written to communities. It's written to plural yous. So the ending of 1 Peter is shouting at us, saying, we are a community. We are a family. The ending is a reminder of who we are, our identity in Christ. So what kind of family are we? Uh, I think we are like sequoia trees. So stick with me here. Sequoia trees, um, often known as the largest living thing on earth, okay? They can grow up to be 250 feet tall. They can live to be 1,500 years old. And you would think, what makes them stand the test of time? What makes them be so tall and live for that long? And you would think they must have deep, deep roots. And if you think that, you'd be wrong because they don't. They actually, the roots only go down about four feet. So what helps them stand the test of time? What helps them live to be 1,500 years old? And the reality is, the answer is, sequoia trees are always in groves. The roots do not go down deep because the roots are, the roots are always intertwined, interlinked, interdependent. Sequoia trees will never grow by themselves, always together, always in a grove. And I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, but I think the family of God is like a grove of sequoia trees. We need to be interlinked, intermeshed, interdependent as we follow Christ. We read this list at the beginning, kind of summing up Peter, that we're to be uh, people who suffer as exiles, that we're to be citizens in a potentially corrupt government, employees in an unjust situation, spouses participating in a difficult marriage, to be slandered victims in a relationship. And all of that can't be done by ourselves. We can't do that by ourselves. We can only do it as the interdependent family of God together. We can only do this if we live out our calling, as you've heard, as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, covenantly committed to one each, with each other and for each other's good. It's the only way that we can do this if we do it together. So if persecution and suffering is the main theme of 1 Peter, then Christian community is its scene. It's in the background. It's where all of this takes place. Christian community is both uh, the greatest apologetic of our faith to a lost world, and it's also the greatest hindrance. It's the greatest stumbling block. Christ's plan A to redeem the whole world was the local church. And if we get it wrong, it's repelling and it's repulsive. But if we get it right, if we get it right, we get glimpses of the kingdom here and now. Glimpses that look rather upside down, but in all the right ways. So as we looked at this ending passage in 1 Peter, I hope that we've seen that to suffer well is to rely upon the grace of God and the family of God. To suffer well is to rely upon the grace of God and the family of God. It's by the grace of God that we're able to do this, and it's with 
the people of God that were able to do this. So as we close the sermon series, uh, I'm reminded again of Moneyball uh, from the beginning. Moneyball was a way to rethink baseball, how it's managed, how it's played, who's best suited to play it, and why. And in a way, I think First Peter is telling us how to rethink the Christian life, how it's viewed, how it's lived, the role of community in it, and why. You see, First, First Peter is a book of rebellion. It's screaming to us, don't conform. Don't conform, Doxa Church. Live as if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that he has come, and that he is coming again. So let's be strange. Let's be unorthodox. Let's be countercultural. Let's make Christianity weird again. We can do it. We can do it. Let's live upside down. All for the glory of God and for the good of each other. Shall we? Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess that we are fickle creatures. We confess that we conform all too often to the patterns of this world. We confess that we live life sometimes as if you're not present, as if you're not our Lord. In the midst of our pain and suffering, remind us of your presence. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us that you are restoring and strengthening us always. And remind us of our eternal hope. When pain and trouble come, we invite your spirit to do its tutoring work through our hardships, inclining our hearts and our souls evermore toward you and each other and your coming kingdom. Your kingdom has come. Your will is being done here on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that we could be a people committed to kingdom living and to each other. And we pray you use us to accomplish your redemptive purposes in this world, and specifically in this community. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.